I'm Jasmine Taylor. Welcome to The Great Collide. People think of the communities that stretch north of Chicago along the lakefront as mostly white and mostly liberal. But the North Shore has a long history of thriving African-American communities that has sometimes faced discrimination. Let's welcome our two guests as we take a look backwards and forwards at race, politics, and religion on the Chicago's North Shore. Now, we are so excited, Jasmine, to have these guests on today and to hear to hear their story, to hear um, what, what they are doing in their communities to, to really make a difference and to make awareness. Dino Robinson is founder of Shorefront Legacy Center in Evanston. Shorefront collects, preserves, and educates people about Black history on Chicago's suburban North Shore. We also welcome Reverend Dr. Michael Neighbors, senior pastor of Second Baptist Church, one of the oldest African-American congregations on the North Shore. I will start with you, Reverend Neighbors, just to ask you, uh, what brought you to the North Shore? Um, uh, thank, thank you so much for asking that that question. I'm I'm a pastor, and I've been um, I've been in pastoral ministry for um, all of my adult life. So when I graduated from uh, seminary at the age of 25, um, I went right into my first church. And so I'd been in Detroit for many years and heard about Second Baptist Church in Evanston and decided that I would apply for the senior pastor position. And that was in uh, 2014. So I actually started in 2015. And I've been here serving as the pastor of Second Baptist, um, organized in 1882 and founded in 1882 and with a membership of about um, 750 members. So it's been a wonderful experience. So of course, I'm gonna ask you the same thing. I've been in Evanston since my parents decided to move here in 1980. Uh, both my parents always wanted to live in Evanston. Uh, my mom is from the South side. My dad is from the West side of Chicago. Um, they met, married, and when they were raising and living in Roseland on the South side of Chicago, they wanted to move North. Um, first Evanston, but, you know, seeing what the school system was going through at that time in the 70s, decided to move to Glenview first. And then by 1980, we moved to Evanston. So we have uh, connections in that. I, I grew up very close to Roseland as well and took that 34 Michigan bus down Michigan every day. <laughs> so very familiar with Roseland and the south side of Chicago, but still also very familiar, both of you are with Evanston. I went to Northwestern in Evanston. So ah, very familiar ah, with both okay. places. Yes. Yes. And I attended Garrett um, in Evanston. Okay. So for yes. seminary. My goodness. So, and yeah. And so Reverend Neighbors, I too uh, graduated when I was 25 and I started at my first church and oh my, what we know <laughs> from then. Good oh heavens. my goodness. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> So, so Dino, let's go to you. How do you how do you define Chicago's North Shore? What towns does it include? Um, how would how would you explain that to someone? Sure. Else? So I've always um, included uh, for part of the North Shore area is Evanston north to Lake Forest. So it's most of Cook County area, and then goes into Lake County. Lake Forest is in Lake County. Um, what's interesting though, if you go further north. Um, most residents in suburban areas exclude Evanston as part of the North Shore, as is deemed too urban and not suburban. Hmm. 
So you got to be suburban to be a part of the North Shore. Yeah, that is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I should say urban is in, I would say urban is in quotes. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So if if either of you could share some of the milestones in the North Shore African-American history, both positive and negative, tell me something about the history and milestones in that history. First of all, I mean, what's interesting is that early migration in the North Shore with the African-American community was pretty interesting that uh, African-American members came directly to the North Shore, not Chicago first, but directly to the North Shore as early as 1855, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. Um, But some of the uh, milestones, I mean, one of the earliest black churches that were established was in 1860 in Lake Forest. It was an AME church. So that was a testament to, you know, what type of, uh, you know, how fast a community was growing within these suburban areas. And then from there, it just kind of launched off. Uh, Some of the early churches also included uh, Ebenezer AME Church in Evanston in 1882, as well as Second Baptist Church in 1882. And then after that, there was uh, St. Paul in Glencoe and Mount Zion back in Evanston. So all of these churches before 1900 had established themselves. And that is, uh, you know, proof that, you know, these growing community, Black African-American communities were growing at a significant pace at that time. And with these early communities, services and facilities are needed. And uh, in 1914, we had two entities that opened up the service to black communities. And that was a segregated YMCA branch called the Emerson Street Branch. And the community hospital, or actually what it was called then was the Edmondson Sanitarium that also opened in 1914. Um, And then more significantly, which speaks to advocacy and fighting against you know racial discrimination was the establishment of an NWCP chapter in Evanston in 1918. Those are some of the early milestones. Wow. wow. Reverend Neighbors, I know you have something. Well, I, I certainly appreciate um, being on this call with our resident expert historian, Dino Robinson. So um, he is able to walk down uh, memory lane in a way that's um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I would I would certainly add my impression of the importance of African American religious institutions starting. And um, as most of you probably know, the Black church was the focal point for the Black community um, over a century ago. So the fact that these churches were beginning in places like Lake Forest and Evanston and Glencoe is uh, an easy indicator that there was a Black community surrounding um, those respective churches. So I think I think that part is important. But <clears throat> I think in addition to that, and, and Dino can talk about this as well, you also had African-American entrepreneurs. They certainly weren't known as entrepreneurs, but they had their own businesses. Um, they, they worked for themselves. Um, uh, there were several that were in the livery business or they had uh, horses and carriages where they escorted um, residents from one part of the community to another. And one of the founders of um, Second Baptist Church was actually a driver for a president of Northwestern uh, University. And uh, we, we have that kind of history and that kind of commitment as well. Dino talked about the establishment of the 
um, what they call the Colored YMCA, which was called the Emerson Street YMCA, uh, established in 1914. I'm happy to say that I have a great grandfather that was actually one of those persons who helped to found um, that in 1914, Dr. Charles Scruggs, who was also um, uh, the community's first Black podiatrist. Um, so we had Black uh, doctors, um, we had Blacks who also had an opportunity to attend Garrett Seminary and other schools. So they had what they called then Bachelor of Divinity degrees. So this was a community that was very, very progressive. And it was a black community that was very well established, um, focused on the importance of higher education and creating opportunities for the next generation. Dino, I think this is under your purview about the history of African-Americans and race relations within the North Shore. What, what general trends do you see in these areas? Oh, well, I would say hands down that with any societal structural um, issues dealing with race, the um, North Shore African-American community did not sit idly by and let things happen. They resisted, they protested, they took to task businesses and institutions and um, scholarly thought about um, you know, segregated practices in the North Shore. So what I saw early in, in history, especially you know, in Evanston, um, when the areas were starting to adopt Jim Crow policies, uh, the African-American community started resisting that immediately as early as 1905, uh, you know, countering any type of scholarly discussion around uh, race differences with a countermeasure of how we're equal to, at least equal to, on par with uh, the rest of society. And there shouldn't be any racial segregation, period. Um, you know, not just in thought, but also in um, access to facilities and uh, access to services. So that's something that I saw that early on in history that still continues to this day. Uh, the general black population, you know, doesn't sit idly by when issues come arise. Uh, we, we tend to stand up, uh, march, protest, write articles, um, draft plays, uh, write music, all addressing issues dealing with um, any type of injustices in, um, in the local community as well as a greater society. That's one trend I saw that always stood out time and time again in every decade in Evanston and the North Shore. Except for Evanston, it seems like all of the communities in the North Shore are overwhelmingly white. And so wh why do you think that is, and why is Evanston the exception to that? My simple rationale and surface um, level answer to that would be that it seems the further north you go, especially into Highland Park and Lake Forest, um, the communities are much more expensive. The real estate um, is much um, higher. Uh, the homes are generally much larger. And so I think that um, the whole economic factor is um, a, a part of it. But I think at the same time, if you go back 100 years or more, I'm not so sure that any of those communities were especially inviting or endearing to Blacks that um, may have had a desire to live in them. 
And so Evanston, because of its proximity to the north side of Chicago, um, was certainly a place um, that 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 blacks would have wanted to live because of being able to get into Chicago so easily, just taking the purple line. But also, I think that there was some general sentiment in Evanston, and I could be wrong about this, Dino, but I think there was a general sentiment in Evanston where the town was growing so large, it knew it needed a black population and you know the black population for better or worse at that time was probably in the service industry so they would have been serving uh, or working um, in many of these white homes and for the institutions that were uh, Northwestern and, and also Garrett. So I think that these institutions and white families were looking for service workers and um, I think African Americans came into, many of them came into Evanston with that in mind. That is a, a major factor uh, to add to that. Um, a lot of residents, white residents in the North Shore looked at the North Shore area as like a haven from Chicago. They wanted to expand their leisurely, leisurely life uh, centered around education and religion. And to have that leisurely life, you need a good pool of workers that will service their, their, their daily needs to take care of like mowing a lawn or doing a laundry, washing windows, things that take away from a leisure life, you have that. So there was a growing need of this type of service. And not to try and import uh, families from further away, like in Chicago, maybe South Side, West Side, wherever, but they have them as close as possible, but not necessarily within their community. So Evanston became like that, that way station for that, along with other pockets, a small and growing uh, community in Glencoe and Lake Forest, where their uh, residential Black residents reached, I think, a number of around 600 residents at one point before both Glencoe and Lake Forest started doing land acquisitions to push Blacks out. And so many of these families ended up moving to Evanston or back in Chicago. But at the same time, uh, some communities, like for example, Kenilworth, was established at first as a sundown town, meaning that after dark, if you're a Black person, you cannot be in that community. And from what I understand, uh, uh, for example, Kenilworth, uh, their original charter said, you know, kind of advertised its properties there is large homes, large plots, no sidewalks, no alleys, and no Negroes. But then they had to revise it because they realized they needed live-in domestics. So they kind of like took that one out, but a Black person could not purchase property in Kenilworth. Super interesting. Wow, 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 wow. wow. <laughs> so I got a question. Let me just quickly add something, and, and Dino, I haven't had a chance to share this with you, but my great-grandmother was a seamstress, and she specialized in making corsets, and this is going back to the 1920s and 30s, so a large part of her clientele actually lived in Kenilworth and in, in some of the other places where Blacks were not allowed, but she would be allowed to come up into those areas specifically for the work, for taking the measurements and doing all of the things, I guess, that corseteers do. So it's very interesting that you have that, um, that reality that Blacks were not necessarily welcome to live in that area, but they took advantage of Blacks who had uh, special services that they could cater to. I'm truly enjoying getting to, to learn the history and the legacy of the race relations on the Chicago's North Shore. So I got a question. Normally we, we've heard uh, that Sunday morning is the most segregated 
day of the week. Would you say that's true of Evanston or specifically first your churches, Reverend Neighbors, and then Evanston in general or the North Shore even? Yeah, Jasmine, it's a great question. And I, I think Leanne, who is a seminary graduate, is aware of this as well. Um, it has been historically true. So it is certainly true for Evanston and, and for the North Shore, much as it is for the United States. But it's important for us to understand and to know that at one time, um, churches were not segregated. You know, we are talking about the antebellum South when uh, most uh, Black people lived uh, in the South before uh, the Civil War and in the years just after the Civil War. Um, it became um, evident that many that many whites who were um, so-called religious or Christians um, did not want blacks to be in their in their churches. And as a result of that, many whites helped to actually um, build and um, begin their own churches. And again, we're talking about the deep south. So by the time the by the time blacks um, migrated to the north, um, what they were doing is they were building their own churches when they migrated to the North. And in places like Evanston, that was not quite the case. When Blacks first arrived in Evanston, um, they belonged to the churches of their particular denomination. If you were Black and Baptist, you went to First Baptist Church, which was a white church. If you were Black and Methodist, you went to First United Methodist Church. But after a short period of time, uh, after Reconstruction and starting in the 1880s, um, Blacks decided that they wanted to have their own houses of worship, to have an expression uh, for being able to understand the work of God through the lenses of their own um, unique Black experience. And so, and so they, they, they started their own churches. In many cases, it was because they did not feel welcome in white churches, and in other cases, it was simply because they wanted their own place. So if we move that to 2023, that still is not shifted. You have some churches that have black and white members, but I don't think there is a church in Evanston or on the North Shore that has a church that's percent white and 50% black. At Second Baptist, for instance, we have families that um, join our church that are white, but easily we are a 95% African-American congregation. And then you have white churches that have um, black members, but easily um, those churches are 95% white with a few black members. So uh, that is just the way it has been. It's the way it is now. But my hope and my dream is that one day, we will be able to worship in the same space where there are an equal number of blacks and whites. But I hope that when that happens, that church is grounded and rooted in the African-American religious experience, which has a universality that is ingratiating for every race. Amen. I know I sounded like I was preaching. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was like, going to oh, that was great. <laughs> church in that moment. We were good. <laughs> Experience. No, I was waiting for the donation plate to be passed around. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So, Reverend Neighbors, have you um, have you seen or how have you seen both white and black churches deal with redlining on the North Shore? Are there are there any churches that stand out um, for their work in speaking out against these issues? The elimination of racism would include redlining and other um, unjust practices in real estate, but it also includes other forms of 
um, of racism as well, whether it's in our education systems, whether it's in a lack of economic opportunities, whether it's in um, the way law enforcement treats the black members in the black community, um, there is a focus on that. And that has really uh, become increasingly evident in recent, uh, in recent months and over the past year where white congregations came together uh, to gift um, reparation stakeholders authority of Evanston um, nearly $900,000, um, 18 white congregations. So there wow. is a focus on that and we're excited about where we're going with that. It's an interfaith movement. So it includes um, members uh, of synagogues as well as various denominations. Mm. Mm, well, that's wonderful. If I, if I might add to that, yeah, if I might add to that on a historical note, um, I know in Evanston for the 60s, uh, Ebenezer Amy Church was very instrumental in leading uh, real estate and equal housing marches in downtown Evanston. But even before that, there was a project uh, in the North Shore called the North Shore Summer Project, which uh, was like an experiment to entice white homeowners to sell to potential black homeowners uh, mm. in either private deals or you know publicly accessible deals. You know, uh, the summer project also did a survey within the community, um, asking the question to white residents: um, Would you be willing to sell your home to a black family? And this resulted mm. in like a field trip. Uh, potential black homeowner, um, home buyers to the North Shore to scout out areas. And some of the findings were pretty interesting. Uh, some did express interest, but their concern was the lack of resources that were important to the black community. I mean, some things we don't keep in mind, like where do I go to get a haircut? You know, does this white barber mm. know how to cut my hair? Mm. You know, where can I get products that are that are necessary for black communities or indicative of the black community? Mm. Uh, and where's the community in general? Do I have to leave the St. Blanco or Wilmette or Winnetka to go to these other places just to have a sense of community? So in many ways that it was eye-opening about how you know, when you have a monogamous type of uh, community, it's very hard to attract diversity unless you adopt a way of life that's not necessarily too um, no, indicative of that community. But that project led to the establishment of an organization that's now called Open Communities. Uh, they're based now in Evanston, but before that, under their previous name, I think it was like North Shore House Equal Housing Initiative. I can't remember the exact name of it right now because it was a long one, mm -hmm. but they were based in Highland Park. And mm -hmm. since the 1970s, they dealt with issues surrounding equal housing, you know, how it's, and, and they broaden it just not for black and white, but for like single mothers or uh, families with kids. And they would do these testings to see how landlords or real estate agencies would discriminate against people of color and other uh, targeted groups that were deemed quote unquote less desirable uh, for them to live in. I am learning so much from this, Jasmine. I mean- Me too, me too. <laughs> Wow. I'm, I'm going to ask Reverend Neighbors a question and then, um, actually both of you, but I'm going to, Reverend Neighbors, you touched on it a little bit about Evanston. Evanston made the national news regarding its slavery reparations initiative. Some people felt like that doesn't go far enough. 
while others uh, feel they shouldn't have to pay for the sins that occurred centuries before they were born. What are your feelings about the stance of the churches on the issue of reparations? Well, I think it's a it's a great question, and uh, again, let me let me say that I, I talked about it uh, a few a few moments ago. Uh, the interfaith community in Evanston has uh, pretty much wholly um, adopted a stance and a perspective to be advocates for Evanston reparations. So I think that's very important. We have over 90 houses of worship in Evanston, and while 18 of them um, committed to giving. I believe the large majority of them are in favor of of reparation. So for the people who argue that um, it doesn't go far enough, um, I'm not sure that there's a reparations program that could ever be established in the history of the world for those out of the African mm -hmm. uh, diaspora where it goes enough. There is not enough money on earth that can compensate for the suffering and for the damage and for the oppression that Africans experience due to hundreds of years of slavery. There's not enough money on earth um, that can repay um, uh, the families uh, on the continent of Africa um, whose loved ones' bones now lie bleached at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean because they did not make it all the way over um, to the Western hemisphere. And, and so for folks who say there's not enough, of course there's not enough. But I also believe that um, a thousand mile journey begins with just one step. And that is why Evanston has become, I think the epicenter for reparations in the United States because we are a community uh, led by Robin Rue Simmons that dared to make that first step. And also for those who, um, who say, well, you know, my, uh, I'm not uh, responsible for the past sins that occurred um, uh, due to racism. Um, I would say if you're willing to give up the advantages um, that you are now standing on and living um, through because of racism, then I could, I, I, I could halfway understand that argument, but you are actually the beneficiary of a racist system that continues to be in place that was built on racism and built on years and years of racism. And let me also say that our reparations program in Evanston does not go back to the institution of slavery. We didn't have a formal kind of slavery uh, in the Evanston community, but it goes back to the existence of racism that was built on um, that was built on slavery. And slavery, of course, you know, was built on colonialism. So when you put all of that together, uh, then it becomes important for people to say, I support reparations because it is seeking to repair damage to a people that have suffered for hundreds of years. And if you have a soul, and if you have any modicum of kindness and intelligence, you will understand that that's beneficial, not just for the people who have suffered, but it's beneficial for all citizens in the United States, black, white, and other. You keep taking me to church. I kept wanting to say amen, amen, and amen. Yes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Let, me, let me just finish by saying, saying this, because I know we're near the end, but I want to back up just a little bit and tell you uh, another reason why I think Evanston is, is really special. In 1954, Evanston hosted the second World Council of Churches annual session. Those sessions only meet every 11 years. And, they, and, the, and Evanston was able to host it primarily because of the United Methodist presence in Evanston. This was the United Methodist Church's national 
and international headquarters for many years. And it really was in 1954. So you had the president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. You had um, the president of Morehouse College, Benjamin E. Mays, coming through Evanston and landing in the Black community as well. And so that's a history that hasn't been written, but I think that's a part of what makes us special. And it's a part of what also makes us strive to um, live out um, the true meaning of trying to build the love community as well. Just one small part with what we're doing with reparations here in Evanston with those who say it's not enough. Um, what I've seen, and I think you know, Reverend Neighbors has also seen is that some you know, members are seeking this stance of, it has to be everything or it's nothing. And I, I just don't think that's attainable. It needs to build into everything and not just one thing. Yeah, well said. Wow, we just thank you both so much for, for sharing your wisdom and your hearts with us. That is definitely something that I think we are now all much more interested in and feel touched uh, to learn more about it. So thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for all who have taken the time with us today. We hope that you'll continue to join us for future episodes as we continue to explore the intersection of politics and faith. And be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can leave us a review and most importantly, tell your friends. You can also find out about us on social media. Just go to gcbm.org for the links. GC bm.org. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago, in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. We say thank you for joining us and keep the faith. <laughs>